Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. This is the seventh sermon in our sermon series on the book of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11. And this evening's study is Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, page 2 in your pew Bible. It would be good if you had that open in front of you as we've been looking at the text rather closely this evening. What we have here for our study is the second part of the first section of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. 2 verse 4 to Genesis chapter 3 verse 26, the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, the first of 10 sections of the overall book. And we saw last Sunday how it is the literary structure of this section that has built upon Genesis chapter 2 verses 2 to 3, the seventh day, the day of God's never-ending rest, where there is no morning and evening as we find on the other six days. We saw how male and female created in the image of God on day six spend their first full day after their creation in God's rest. In other words, in worship and in glorifying God. This indeed is our purpose, why we were created. Our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The seventh day stands apart grammatically, just as man's creation does. And this is no accident. This is to keep always before us in this first part, before the great fall of mankind, who we truly are in our nature. Man is created in God's image, can hear God's word and respond to it, unlike any other creature that God has made. Responding in loving obedience, moving from one degree of glory to another. Man is a regal being, kingly in aspect, meant to be fruitful and multiply as God's humble steward so that God's glory in his image in mankind may fill the earth as image bearers. Man's purpose is therefore still something to be fully accomplished. Because in the end we learn in the course of scripture how as the offspring of God, there is a real possibility of eternal sonship, of eternal inheritance. And so last Sunday we examined chapter 2 verses 4 through 17 in more detail of God's provision for man, his image bearer, his vice regent, and indeed his high priest. First we saw how God revises his name from the prologue of Genesis. He is now Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh the personal covenant name of God who relates intimately to and eventually redeems his people 
It's centered in a localized place, moving from the earth to a garden in Eden, in the east. The garden is to be a specific place in loving, joyous relation. The epicenter between the creator father, the man, and creation. This is the garden of God, the specific place of his glory and of his presence. Indeed, the garden is God's dwelling with man. It is his temple. Man was to partake of everything in the garden, to his heart's content, which included the tree of life. Everything was there for him. Everything he could possibly want. His responsibility, to steward it, to care for it, to joyously glorify in it, and to guard it. He's bound over not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This tree wrapped in a prohibition. In other words, man is not to decide what is right without reference to God's revealed will. But God's revealed will is not yet complete at this moment in time at the start of man in the garden. Man needs a partner in order to worship God fully. He needs a partner in order to fulfill his purpose, to carry the image of God to all creation, to be the bearer of new generations to fill the earth. Therefore, God establishes marriage. Now, much could be said of this passage we will study this evening. So much indeed has been written. I could easily have a series in itself on these verses. So much is debated concerning the relationship between men and women. So we must be very careful here to to not read into this text our own bias or presuppositions, rather to let the text stand on its own. So let's do a close reading then of this passage. First, notice our Heavenly Father's tender instruction of man. He must need show him his need so that he can fulfill God's command. He declares it, doesn't he? It is not good for man to be alone in worshiping me, in learning and submitting to my word. There's an emphatic negative here that contrasts with all that's gone before in the prologue. We can also see already, again, as we saw at the beginning of the prologue, a Trinitarian foundation, this idea of God as Trinity that we found in the first description of God in Genesis chapter 1, the plurality, Father, Son, and Spirit. We see here that the image bearer would also, by nature, require a plurality as well. He bears God's image. The relational character of that image now comes to the front. Man's nature reflects an intimacy with the Lord God vertically, the creator and the creature, but there is another analogous need, the horizontal relationship, 
creature to creature, in community, gathering at the throne as we heard in our reading this evening of Revelation chapter 19, all coming to the great marriage feast of the Lamb. That is our end, wrapped up now here in the beginning, because it is here that it becomes fascinating, because God, as you can see, does not consult the man. Man has no idea that it was not good for him to be alone. Instead, God resolves to provide for man. His solution is to make a helper for the man. He declares emphatically that he will create a helper. Now, helper does not mean, in the original language, a lesser substance or status before God, but rather one of function or role. The term is usually used of God's own assistance. God is called the helper in the Old Testament, the helper of Israel against her enemies, the helper of Moses against Pharaoh. Still more, as we have seen, the literary structure of the seventh day, all image bearers worship God equally. Therefore, the helper would be complementary to the man. In other words, he would complete him. This is why we have the phrase, a helper fit for him. More precisely, in the original, is more like the opposite him, or according to his opposite. In other words, the helper would be a corresponding counterpart. A counterpart that would share in man's nature, enabling both vertical and horizontal relationality. Her opposite, matching, complementary nature would supply what was lacking in him. So God declared that help was on the way from one who would be both like and unlike the man. The helper would be the one whose corresponding differences would make man complete to fulfill what God had purposed for the creation of man in the first place. The differences are straightforward. In order for man to fulfill the command to fill the earth, both the man and the helper must be complementary in nature in order for procreation to occur. This is why the Apostle Paul would say that the man was not made for the woman, but woman for the man in order to fulfill this command at creation, to fill the earth. The woman would make it possible for man to do what he could never do alone. So once again, as we saw as he gave instruction concerning the care and guarding of the garden. We see here in verses 19 through 20 how God, our Heavenly Father, tenderly teaches the man. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gives names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens, every beast of the field, But for Adam, 
there was not found a helper fit for him. Now let's consider this very carefully, very slowly. Because it's here that we begin to understand that an equality before God in nature does not create an egalitarian order. Rather, man first, acting as one created first in the image of God, now imitates the work of the creator by naming the animals. That first step you see in his stewardship. In the prologue, it was God who names the various spaces and creatures of creation, and his naming is not casually done, but rather a hallmark of his authority. Man now shows his authority over the animal world through the same medium. In other words, he speaks as God speaks, naming the animals. Now consider the reason why God brings the animals before the man. It's to show man that he should realize his need for a partner, for a helper. First, by naming the creatures, man becomes aware that he is alone, solitary. No animal looks or acts as he does. Next, there is no verbal response when man calls out their names. And third, he sees that animals are with others according to their own kind, as the prologue describes them. In other words, they have their counterpart, but he has none. Man is by himself. This is why... At the climax of this teaching, we hear the proper name given for the first time. In the original language, Adam, Adam. A name underlines his unique personality. It's special in contrast to the rest of the animal kingdom. The name reinforces his status. God has a covenant name. Yahweh Elohim. Man now has a covenant name as well, Adam. In the same way, he explained to him what it means to work and to protect the garden, the place of God's presence. God now teaches Adam that he has a need for another to complement himself. In other words, my dear friends, God is preparing Adam to love, honor, and cherish his helper. So now we come to the provision. Adam understands. He's ready. And so in five short clauses in verses 21 and 22, we see how these clauses have a deep relational or covenantal significance based upon all that has come before it. We see it here in the way in which the text tells us that God causes a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. 
Now, this is no ordinary sleep from an anesthetic, although it is certainly at least that. Because the next time we see this exact description in the Old Testament scriptures, it is a deep God-induced sleep. When God made the covenant with Abraham, in the same way, causing Abraham to go into a deep sleep. When he passes between the pieces of sacrifice, making the great covenant that guaranteed your salvation and my own, because in that covenant, Abraham is promised from his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Notice also how Adam cannot act or perceive what God accomplishes on his behalf. Sound familiar? Do you see already, my dear friends, how the structure of God's grace is already at work here in the same way that we are justified in Christ as a gift of God? Adam, like us, must give all the glory to the evidences of God's work accomplished as we do in the great accomplishment of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to know that an actual rib is used because there is a parallelism here again, stressing the likeness of man and woman. Adam is created from the substance of the earth, not out of nothing. And woman is not created out of nothing. She is made of the same stuff as Adam. She is the first to be created from a living being in the image of God. So she perfectly shares the image of God and the intimacy she has with Adam is underlined. Bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. The woman taken out of the man so that both might embrace a great love as man and woman, the image of God fully realized, reflected in her and him so that they can both honor God and worship him. Love, worship, and glory. We can see then, can't we, already here, that this is exactly the pattern the Apostle Paul sets in Ephesians chapter 5 as he explains Christian marriage. Now next, in the last line of verse 22, God brings her to the man. Now notice how earlier he had brought the animals to the man, but here God brings to the man in a different way that may be overlooked in our translation because the emphasis in the original is on the pronoun her. All the focus is on the woman now. That's where the weight of the sentence is. God is the Heavenly Father who presents his son with a valuable, priceless gift that is bound to please him and to be cherished by him. Do you see what's going on here? This scene is quoted and understood by the rest of the scriptures in one sense only. God himself is the father of the bride who leads the woman 
to the man. And the point of the description is to underline how marriage between man and woman is established by God in creation. And that's where we go next. Adam's response to the creation of the woman is joy, with an elation that is reflected in his language. There's an elevated style here. The first recorded human words are, in fact, poetry. He begins in exclamation in the original. This time, he cries out. In other words, after God has led all the animals to man, at last, finally, this time, here is someone who corresponds to me. Here is my helper. Here is my mate. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This formula is used throughout the Old Testament scriptures to mean kinship, affinity, same nature, mirror of oneself. His joy is in that he will no longer be alone. And so he names, he names her the woman. The naming shows that while there is that equal correspondence in nature, there remains an order. Adam is the covenant head, exercising a priestly guard, guarding of the garden, a kingly reign in stewardship, and also in the naming, as God, by his authority, has named the creatures. Adam names the woman with the same authority he possessed in naming the animals, and when he later gives her her name, Eve. There's a play on words here that the English echoes. He calls her Isha in Hebrew, woman, because she was taken out of Ish, the man. Woman, man. Her name resembles his as her physical, emotional, and intellectual being is like his. Moses now turns to his congregation at Sinai as he has related this and to us to explain how the marriage of the man and the woman is to be a pattern that God has set in time and in creation before the fall. Marriage is embedded in creation, established by God. And its purpose is explained here in marriage that man must leave his parents and cleave to his wife. If not, his parents still keep their authority within the family. So many marriages could fail at precisely this point. Husbands and wives at some level fail to leave their parents. But it's only in that way that the mandate given at creation to fill the earth with the image of God can be realized. God's instruction and command in creation at that time should not be ignored. The husband must leave to build a new order, a new family. Marriage, indeed, is a covenant, a public declaration in the sight of God. The Anglican service expresses it exactly in that way a covenant before God and before this company assembled. It is not 
a private matter. It involves a declaration of intention, a reorganization of relationship, that man and woman become one flesh. But there is so much more here than the physical unity that may bring the gift of children. It also includes a moral, emotional, and in terms of giving God's glory, a spiritual foundation. The two must have one another if they are to fulfill the potential, the possibility of who they are in God. It's at this point that the narrative ends. The two humans, man and woman, are naked. They are not ashamed. The force of the original is more strong still. They felt no shame before one another. The sense of ashamed here has the force of confusion or embarrassment and dismay that occurs when matters turn out differently than expected. In other words, it's the opposite of trust. And my dear friends, after so many years in ministry and counseling couples, and within my own life itself, if I could point to the one thing that can destroy what God has established, it is the loss of trust. Adam and the woman had complete faith, complete trust in one another. Indeed, they had nothing to be ashamed of, did they? No guilt, no remorse or memory of an immoral act stood between them. They existed continually in the same state of perfection in their relationship. And this is how marriage was originally created by the Creator. And it is the same understanding the Lord Jesus Christ has as well, for he references this passage in the Gospels. So what can we say? Because if marriage existed before the fall, what conclusions can we make? Well, the first one is an obvious one. It's monogamous. In other words, each man having only one wife. Polygamy, as you will see, does not appear until Genesis chapter 4, when it is introduced by Lamech, a wicked descendant of Cain. You see, my dear friends, polygamy is never, ever accepted in the Old Testament. Instead, it is described as a chaotic, destructive force in marriage. It brings rivalry, sexual license, rape, even the murder of siblings. As the bloody history of the families in the rest of Genesis and into the Old Testament bear witness. So we learn here already an important principle as we ponder this, that what the scriptures describe honestly does not mean it agrees or condones with what it describes. 
Instead, it is evidence of our need, of our need of redemption. The next, another obvious conclusion is that it is heterosexual. There is no justification for homosexual Christian marriage or bisexual Christian marriage on the basis of this ordinance. And the third point must be the strangest to us today, for it's one we never mention without the shadow of cynicism, that the ultimate purpose of marriage is not for our personal fulfillment. It is not because our love will go on forever. But rather, my dear friends, the ultimate purpose of marriage is to worship God, to glorify God, and to enjoy him forever. For it is only in submitting to his word, in loving and joyous obedience, the man and the woman in marriage, that if they had not fallen, would have indeed brought us to our chief end on earth, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Oh, my dear friends, how much, how much was lost in our parents' disobedience. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church. Ancient Truth. Real People. New Life.